Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Bradley Gerard, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. Yep, had a good week living the life of a bachelor because my wife's uh, down in Devon with our six month daughter. So I've been able to go to bed at, you know, the late hour of 10 o'clock as opposed to nine o'clock. Been oh, brilliant. Lucky you. Yep. Lucky you. I, I still get to go to bed at 12. <laughs> no, my wife's around. Um, <laughs> Stephen Wilmot, Companies Editor. How are you doing, Stephen? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, good. How's shoulder? Uh, yeah, it's getting better. Um, able to walk around the office without my sling, so that's uh, progress. Still got your pillow though, haven't you? Still got my pillow. And uh, over in the control room, looking after us today, Dom Tom's. How you doing, Dom? Excellent. Good. Good. Okay. Um, it's really uh, exciting at the moment on the markets. I say exciting, exciting, depressing, uh, petrifi- turbulent. petrifying, turbulent. However you want to describe it. So I guess the big theme of this week is uh, is the big market sell-off i mean it's been it's been pretty frightening yeah absolutely i mean the, the biggest uh the main area where it's been uh most visible is is the emerging markets mm. um which you la- wrote about in, in yeah the there's a piece in the um, magazine we'll talk about in a bit um obviously largely driven by china and strong us dollar are two key drivers anyway but it does have an impact on markets globally and you've seen the FTSE. Uh, I believe hit a year-to-date low. I think um, so. You know, it does have an impact on even if you're a domestic investor. Um, but everything's getting thumped. Try yeah, it is. So your bricks and your non-bricks are all getting thumped. Yeah, right? there's all a reason. If it's low commodity prices, has an impact on uh, emerging market countries that produce you know, commodities, such which as Russia, is a, which is a lot of them, which is bad. Yeah, Brazil. Brazil. Yeah, or if they're net importers, um, you know, there's other headwinds such as the dollar strength. So wherever you turn, really, there are a lot of emerging markets that are struggling for various different reasons. Quickly jumping ahead to to the results. Um, exactly. This was actually, this, let's not jump ahead. Let's jump around. Yeah, uh, this was a big theme of the of the results this week. We've had a lot of um, mining and oil and gas results over the past week. Ugly. And, uh, it's ugly. been ugly. I mean, the, the the most striking one was Glencore yesterday. It, it, it announced actually this big write down of its Chad oil assets, Chad, which it only acquired last year. Yeah, that's that that um, struck me uh, reading the pages because you know if you you acquire something a year ago and then write off basically more than half the value a year later, and that's you, pretty bad. And you're supposedly. Uh, a trader who who makes money by second guessing commodity moves. We've always had our doubts about Glencore. <laughs> we've always had our doubts about Glencore. Always, yeah. and we, we I think we actually when it came to market we we, we yeah, wrote we a rather dismissive feature of it yeah. uh, three years ago, now, three or four years ago. Four now. years ago, yeah. um, and and I think the sh- I mean we we write in the actual results. The shares are down seventy percent since on the, the IPO on the price. IPO price. I mean, it's that extraordinary. absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah, and they're still in the FTSE hundred by. So it's not. It's, it was a very large company, and it's now seventy um, percent smaller, but it's still a very large company. Still a very large company, <laughs> but but you know, I mean, no, no um, miner seems to be safe. So I mean, just looking at this page here, you've got Gem Diamonds. I mean, that's a precious metal, precious metal, precious commodity miner. Yeah, the share price is ugly. Yeah, Hochschild Mining, silver, and I think that that was a price is ugly. That was a theme of the Glencore results, actually, because Glencore looked reasonably resilient. People had this idea that because it had this trading business, it would be able to, like a hedge fund, do well in you know, in, in poor conditions for commodity markets as well, uh, which turns out not to have been the case in the first half. And um, the chief executive had to kind of downgrade his expectations for that business. But the other thing is that um, the commodity route has sort of spread to the kind of slightly more niche commodities that Glencore has. Mm. So um, copper, zinc, that kind of thing. Anyway, but that is kind of the, the, the route in commodities really has become very broad. I think that's an interesting feature of it. And this is all about, I mean, it's all about China, really. 
Yes. And we haven't written yeah. about China in seven days, have we, this week, Bradley? Because uh, we've written about it for pretty much every week for the past yeah, several it's, months. It's but, been I mean, a prevalent topic. So. It, it has. But, I mean, I think there was another big sell-off uh, past couple of days in China. It's looking pretty, pretty nasty. And I think, you know, the, the China fears, which I think were downplayed to a certain extent when we spoke last week, they're starting to get people worried. There is, I mean, I was reading a few um, releases from fund managers the past few days, and um, I mean, someone like Mark Mobius, obviously very well-known emerging markets investor, sees this as quite a natural route um, for China to become more um, part of the global market rather than being an isolated um, entity. So it depends on your point of view, but I mean, regardless, in a way of your view, there are worries out there about what China's doing, uh, the ability to really know why it's doing what it's doing, and that's really weighing on markets. So, so your piece, you're you're talking. You spoke to some professional investors and fund managers. Yeah. Uh, so, what's their view? I mean, some, the guys that you know are, are buying this on behalf of of, uh, of retail investors or retail fund buyers. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, are they, I, I guess they're not upping their exposure at the moment. Do they see this as, as bargain territory, or are they worried that things are going to get worse? Well, this is it. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I spoke to a couple of multi managers who can, you know, they can go anywhere in their portfolios. They can buy whichever asset classes they like. Um, and I spoke to a UK equity fund manager as well, and all of them have, um, well, the two multi managers especially have cut exposure recently. They still have some, um, but then they're pretty cautious about calling this a value opportunity. In fact, you know, James Sullivan said he was where James he was Sullivan of his of Quorum Asset Management. Right, um, he used to work at Myton. Um, he is wary of catching falling knives in his words um, and even if you sort of bring it back to the, the UK market I spoke to Philip Matthews who runs Richard Buxton's old fund at Schroeder's yeah. um, his focus at the moment is active bets as he calls them which are those positions which are most different to the neutral stock market weightings he is focusing very much on domestic stories so domestic recovery stories like Balfour Beatty that sort of thing yeah well I mean I guess the interesting thing about the FTSE 100 when you compare it to say some of the big uh, US indices you know Dow Jones industrial average uh, S&P 500 is that the FTSE 100 has always been much more of a, an international index much more mining heavy mm. um, so so I mean to its detriment in the last to its detriment few, now you know, weeks or, yeah. uh, absolutely um, so yeah I mean it's it's going to be exposed to this perhaps worse than than some of the other yeah and it's uh, a point that Philip Matthews raises in the piece actually that the, di- the difference um, the dispersion in performance between the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250 is pretty stark year to date the FTSE 100 when he was speaking was just down year to date the FTSE 250 quite the opposite yeah up quite strongly but the FTSE 250 has always been perceived as this is much more UK centric I, I think that is perhaps less true now mm. I mean you know looking at, uh, at lots of the UK companies in that mid mid cap tier a lot of them are much more international in their, in scope now. I mean, I think that's fair to say. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, all the engineering sector is all FTSE 250. Obviously, that's very international. But I guess the FTSE 250 also contains all of the retailers, just about all the retailers. Yeah. Um, house builders. The house builders. Well, should we, should we talk house builders? Yeah, well, uh, we're dying to talk house builders. <laughs> we had a big chat about this in the office. Let's talk house builders. I mean, emerging markets. So um, let's sum up. Yep. Pretty pretty horrible. It's be pretty careful. Bad. Be careful with either UK companies that are exposed to it 
or investing in funds that are directly exposed to it. Yeah. Uh, UK is probably the place to be at the moment. There are, mm. there are maybe some opportunities like James Sullivan said um, Standard Chartered could be a good contrarian bet. If very want to very be early. contrarian. If those want to be early into the theme, check out Chris Dillow's piece as well because he talks about emerging markets extensively in that. Okay, let's get back to House Builders, which mm. we uh, briefly alluded to there. House Builders, we had a good debate this week in the office about the prospects for house building shares because we had results from Persimmon. And Bovis. And Bovis. Yeah, um, and, 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 you know, we, we've just got into this quite familiar pattern where every time a house builder is reported, um, it's beaten expectations. The shares have jumped to good, you know, three or four percent. And we've reiterated our buy recommendations. We have reiterated our buy and we recommendations have re- again we have, this week. We have reiterated them again. Um, but there is, I think, you know, there's, ro- there's room for more caution than there, I agree. Than, than there has been for some time. House building fell quite dramatically in the second quarter um, because of labour constraints. I saw the, uh, the, the, the so the a, actual numbers of houses yeah, being built. The ONS stats came out this morning. Okay, and, I mean that's um, that's surprising because it's not like there's shortage of demand for new mm, housing. No, exactly, and it's yes, it's got very little to, to do with demand. Though I mean, there may be yeah, there are affordability affordability constraints. Though not for persimmon, but there's not there's not the lending constraints at the moment. But but yeah, the the lenders are 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 expanding their balance sheets. Yeah, um, without a doubt. Um, something we've discussed uh, in previous podcasts, I think, is the kind of health virtually of the the kind of domestic banking industry, mm. that, which which isn't exposed to legacy. So I guess um, I guess the, the I guess the summary is we we're a little bit worried about. About mm. house builders at the moment. Yeah, we're um, one, we're wondering if we should moderate our, you know, w- what has been a very successful bullish call for the past you know, three or four years. Yeah, I mean, I wrote my editorial on this last week, <laughs> um, and this was purely on on the the scuttlebutt basis that I can't get a builder. So, <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, so my 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 twisted logic goes something like I can't get a builder, therefore these guys must be struggling to get labour as well. Um, and actually, it's turned out to be sort of true. Mm. Um, yeah, as yeah. the official stats show a week later you should yeah. work the ONS <laughs> I, um, I don't think the ONS has a, has a gut feel division but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it does feel like when you look at house builders and the, the run they've had that the shares are very expensive based mm. on the, the measures by which we would historically value them yeah I mean historically these shares have been valued as a multiple of NAV and persimmons Shares are now three times, almost three times NAV. Which and how is, does that compare with which is with very where very expensive histo- against history? I mean, when I lo- last looked into this, which was admittedly a few months ago, I think the long term average persimmon has always been at a bit of a premium, but like the long term average was about one point four, one point five times NAV. Yep, sounds about right. Um, so you know, persimmon's okay. It's always traded at a premium because it didn't raise equity in two thousand and nine, and it's got a very strong track record as a result, but. Um, it, it you know it, it, even by by its own standards it's it's very expensive now and I, and you know it, it, the 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 market is is buoyant still but it's just housing starts in Q2 um, fell sharply reversing more than half of the the gains in the first quarter it's quite um, quite striking yeah and, and that that they think that has something to do with mainly with labour shortages. Really? Well, which is exactly what I wrote about. Yeah, it I is. Am, I am a genius. <laughs> <You are. laughs> hey, um, hey, the editor. Thank you. Um, thank you, everybody. Um, I mean, no, it's interesting because my other worry is that so valuation wise, you talked about the NAV valuation on a PE basis, they're looking expensive too. Yeah. And, you know, that's not necessarily how the sector is 
traditionally been valued. But I guess when one metric starts working against you, you yeah, analyst community, yeah. you start moving <laughs> on to another one, which perhaps makes them look a little bit more viable. Mm -hmm. But even that's which is P, in this case PE ratios, yeah, which I mean, which even even in that case they're looking a little bit toppy. Yes, I. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what the I mean the P ratios of house builders have always looked quite cheap relative to the rest of the market exactly and now they're not uh, and now so they're cheap. looking a bit more in line and I guess yeah that is a a, a warning flag definitely. now that you know we would generally argue that you know a P ratio is a reflection of the potential growth of profits in the in the months and years ahead mm. um, but we're also worried about that because you know this is not an industry that can increase supply very easily it cannot build a significant number more houses each year than it did the year before. Mm -hmm. it, certainly exactly. from where we are today, and uh, yet, uh, and yet, the, and the cost side yeah. of the equation is starting to work against it. Yeah, uh, uh, and and there's, I mean, there's actually signs that for persimmon that the the house price growth, which has also been a big headwind, starting to slow. Starting to slow. So it could be that you know none, none of none of this the none of this is exactly bad news it just makes the shares look a bit expensive yeah um and and you know if, if some of those headwind if some of those tailwinds moderate um the, the cost pressures are sort of building house price inflation is cooling and they just can't produce the you know production the the the, the growth and starts that they have for the last three or four years well but my view that i then then they just they're too expensive indeed well my view that i wrote in the editorial was not so much yeah. that they you know even if they wanted to build more they, if they wanted to build more, they could, right? I'm sure they could. Well, there's planning, though, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of nimbyism, and yeah, there, you know, there is slow. But they've still they've still got four or five got land, years of supply, massive you know, land banks with consented. But you know, if but, they but if it, they were to flood it, the market with properties, that would have an impact on pricing. Mm. And you know, pricing. Well, and they can't. They just can't. You know, they can't. Even if they wanted to, which they have no economic interest in doing, that is my point. Yeah, <laughs> they 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 couldn't like just muster up the, the 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 brickies and the you know all the timber and all the stuff that you need to make houses. No, um, no, they've you know they've, they've, it's got to be a fairly controlled process, and I think um, that that has been highlighted by these results and the fact that the shares for the first time in ages fell on the results. And then there, there might there look, looks like there might be a bit of profit taking there. Yeah, I kind of um, if if um, I own those shares, I'd probably be thinking the same. Mm. Certainly taking any profit off the table, and you mm. know perhaps running running with the original stake. Mm. Um, this because because there's cash to come back. I mean, they're they're still going to be distributing. Yeah, a lot exactly. Of, a lot yeah, of, uh, and persimmon uh, is special dividends in the year. In yeah, the absolutely. Ahead. Both you know, a persimmon has this uh, huge kind of cash return plan. Um, yeah. Okay. No, it's it's, it's interesting stuff, and it, you know definitely watch this space because we're we're um we're going to be looking at that very carefully in the weeks ahead because uh, yeah. You know, as I write in my editorial this week, you know, a paper profit is one thing. Turning it into a real profit is is another. And there's nothing wrong with taking a profit from time to time, especially in a, se a sector that is cyclical, mm. which house building is. Mm. There you go. OK. Um, I mean, just heading back to the, the, the news this week, uh, Greece has finally seemed to become less of an issue because the germans have said yes yeah i think that's probably as much as we should say about that as again like yeah. china been talking about it for ages but no it is at least um putting the issue to bed for well maybe three years because that's how long the agreement struck for germany's parliament agreeing this um albeit with some rebellion is obviously a very good thing because germany will be the biggest contributor i believe to the bailout package so yeah hopefully 
job done. Let's not worry about Greece anymore for a few years' time. Yeah, and I, I was intrigued by the story about um, German real estate that we ran mm. in the news section this week because we, we, we're kind of big fans of that. And it's, yeah. But it seems that well, it's, other it, people are it, not. Well, it was sparked by a um, um, yeah, move by Granger to sell off its German residential assets. And Gr- mm. Granger diversified into German private rented accommodation. But in, that's the way the market works there. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a big rental market, and so there's a very established institutional market for buying these assets. And so, when in 2005, you know, it's it's it's, it's traditional business is buying these regulated tenancies, you know, pre 1989 tenant tenancies, where there's this, where basically the tenants pay next to no money, but when they die or move out, then the value of the house increases quite a lot because um because it's it's marked to because market. it's marked to market exactly yeah. because of the, the the this these old um rents are no are no, no longer valid yeah. so it has this kind of quite um very specialist residential investment business which it recognizes is recognized for de- you know for years that it's not the future but it still makes money out of it so carries on but anyway yeah and so it diversified into germany but now that the UK private rental sector is turning into an institutional asset class, it's decided to kind of sell that business and um, and move back to the UK. Um, so that's kind of an interesting um, development for Granger. Yeah. Well, we, but, we, but we, I mean, we've but it tipped all, a couple of companies out. out yeah, and, and back, back when I... Um, yeah, we have recently. Jonas, our property guy, um, has, has tipped a, a couple, one called... Uh, Spree Deutschland or something. Very good pronunciation. <laughs> I was about to say Phoenix Spree. Phoenix uh, Spree, <laughs> yeah. Well, S P R E Spree. It's the it's the river which runs through Berlin, as it happens. Anyway, it owns Berlin. It was get a, it, he was paying attention ex- in geography uh, lessons. Uh, I wasn't. An excellent German lesson from Stephen. Do you know uh, Borussia Dortmund play, played Borussia Motion Gladbach on the first day of the German season this year? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Did, uh, what's the results, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> I somehow managed to miss that one. Um, can't uh, can't imagine why. Yeah. Um, anyway, the um, yeah. I mean, the, the, but the, the, so that's it's for one thing. It's about specialization. I mean, that investors and analysts like companies to be quite specialized these days. They like, um, you know, they like REITs not to do massive. So in property, they like REIT, the real estate investment trusts not to do massive. Uh, development projects sometimes because um, you know as an investor you can invest in a developer if you want that kind of exposure Uh, and likewise there's been this move for actually it's been going on for some time like British land sold its last overseas assets a couple of years ago Um, and yeah there's there's been this move shift back to the UK and let's not forget that the the UK domestic economy has as we've been discussing been um, more you know, more promising than the, the the ones in continental Europe for some years now. So mm. even Germany, which is pretty healthy, uh, so that there has been sort of an incentive for property companies to basically sell their overseas assets. Um, but yeah, it doesn't. It but, doesn't we lo- but we like but, the specialists. But at, still. The, at the same time, we like yeah these German specialist yeah. Um, yeah. trusts. I mean, when I was covering property, I I tipped a uh, if I'm allowed to. Blow my trumpet for a moment. I I tip the Taliesin Property Fund, which owns, which is a UK listed, like the uh, Phoenix Breed Deutschland owns Berlin um, housing. I I and uh, 
Ian kindly pointed out in this news article that I tipped it at 1,085p back in November 2012, and it's now at 2,348p, so it's more than doubled. Well, Stephen, you were, you you did call the whole regional property recovery, and I think, you know, Germany's quite regional. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You did call that before anyone else did, uh, and were the, uh, who was the, uh, who did you get the award from? LSL. And you were the NSL Property Journalist of the Year and mm. Newcomer of the Year and International Property <laughs> Journalist of the Year. Yeah, actually, then so, they particularly singled out my, my German uh, residential article. So there we go. There you go. We uh, wasted as company's editor. <laughs> <laughs> Should be running a German property company. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Um, so uh, on the news front, anything else particularly interesting? The living wage thing I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, it is. A, it's, it's an issue that was obviously flagged in the budget. So arguably the issue itself isn't massively new. But <clears throat> what is new is research from Liberum. They've sort of crunched the numbers of the support services businesses and highlighted some of those they think will be most impacted by mm. this, actually. Um, obviously, the, the, the numbers in the story are based on Liberum's research. Um, one guesses they will know the companies well enough for the figures to be correct. Um, they highlight Mighty and Mears as particular um, casualties of the living wage because of the the low amount, the the, the low average amount they pay their staff. Yeah, I, I can believe that. I mean, you know, I used to cover uh, a couple of these companies, but uh, G, G4S was a company that always struck me. I had no idea. It's the largest employer mm. on the FTSE. It's massive. On the FTSE. In fact, mm. it's absolutely huge. And obviously, you know, when you think about it, it's like, yeah, of course, it's uh, lots of security, security guards earning yeah. earning minimum wage. So you you guess yeah. they'd be and cleaning well. staff and yeah. that sort of thing. So yeah. arguably, mm. the the groups are sort of predisposed to having a, a workforce that is paid a bit less. But with these changes, it, obviously, that means the effect on them will be magnified. And um, yeah, as I said, Liberum highlights Mighty Amirs as being among the hardest hit in the support services sectors anyway. Um, but um, Emma, who wrote the story, also references other companies. So there's Interserve, which is support services too. Um, they've already outlined the potential impacts to their bottom line as they see it. 10 to 15, 15 million quid. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah I mean, that's not small. No, exactly. It's not small. It's not insignificant, no. Um, and obviously, it's it's difficult, I suppose. These companies are largely geared into government spending. So I guess there's a bit of a problem whereby, say if you're a gambling company and you're being taxed more, you can maybe up revenues. But if you're a support services company, you've got to pay your staff more, but your client is the government, which is cutting its budgets, then... You know, yeah, it gets a bit tricky. It gets a bit tricky. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm not sure what that impact that's had on our recommendations in the sector, but I imagine we we'd be fairly cautious on that on that basis. Yeah, I think Emma's. Um, I'd, I'd watch well, out for a few um, tip updates. Actually, I think Emma's. I heard her talking about a potential change for one of those companies. So yes, indeed. I won't well, uh, ruin it unless ne- Stephen next wants week, to reveal. No, no. Next week's tip section um, may feature a sell recommendation in that uh, sector. It's all we should say at this point. Enticing. Mm. That's front running, isn't it? I haven't said which company it is. <laughs> I'm selling all of them now. <laughs> Talking of front running, um, Stephen, you've been, you've been, you've, you've I wasn't been, accusing anyone of front running. No, he yeah, was accusing you. But, but, but you've talked. Okay, so I'm not accusing anyone of front running either. Um, but you're you're uh, you're taking stock column this week. I it touched a note with me because uh, it's about analyst research, mm. and I used to be an analyst. Mm. And uh, well, I think actually it's interesting what um, we've just been talking about. Uh, you know, um, a, a piece we wrote on the back of a, a, re- a research note, and you know, this is what analysts are quite good at: um, crunching through, you know, 
highlighting areas of concern based on recent news. So what Liberum has obviously done there is just looked at you know the companies which have the you know lowest average wages, and, and we've done a few kind of done a bit of good data mining, which yeah. is sort of throwing up some names. And actually, that's that's what that's good investment research. That's useful. I think so. Um, but I guess I was just highlighting that. Yeah, investment re- often broker notes. As often, I would say, broker notes are sort of marketing material for companies dressed up as investment research. Mm. And it's it's sometimes a bit hard to tell the difference between the two. And I mean, this was sparked by an excellent um, sort of piece of content in the FT written by a, a, a research analyst about, you know, the kind of pressures they face to put things on a buy um, do you think that was his real name? <laughs> I, no, it is because it is on, his real name. It is. is it? He's on Twitter. I, I had wow. a look at him and checked. He's it. a brave man. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I, he's not an analyst anymore. No, he is. Uh, this is why well. I, 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 I found it quite <laughs> extraordinary. I was tr- trying to work out why his he works for a firm which I hadn't um, hadn't heard of, um, and I wonder whether they to try and sell themselves to do is something it, different. Is it an independent firm? It's an independent firm. Ah, oh, right, there you go. Well, that, exactly, which might explain it's it. It's always a conflict of interest in everything. You always have to read between the lines. You always have to understand the context. But I guess uh, this, this is it. I mean, basically, when you... you, you we, we try and highlight when it's a housebroker rather than um, just a regular... i.e. Where the, where, the, where the broker is being, you know, paying a retainer to the... Sorry, where the brokers receiving a retainer from the company yeah um, i mean as, as an analyst you would always want to cover if you're covering it if you even if you had a house stock you'd want to cover the other companies in the universe because you obviously have to have a picture of of the sector mm. so some of them you would have a relationship with some of them you wouldn't mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily mean that your um recommendations and write-ups are i mean they're certainly not inaccurate on those companies but they're just more likely to be a bit more bullish and you just have to treat it with a lot of a big pinch of salt it's important to know who the house broker is exactly. it's important to know where the relationships are when you're looking at house house research now Stephen, you know i was i was i read your column with some interest as well because i thought i'd written it a few weeks before <laughs> myself as my editorial um which i which you obviously hadn't read because were you on holiday breaking your shoulder <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm sure I did read it at the time. Yeah, um, no, no, because, I, because as I said, you know, this struck me as well because yeah, there are some changes coming in in the way research is paid for, and that's the big thing. Mm. So you know, when I was an analyst back in uh, what, 2015, you know, we we didn't get and research was not paid for in its own right. It was paid for uh, in the form of what you call soft commissions. So uh, a fund manager or whoever it might be would put some business our way. Uh, if they liked a piece of research, but it would come in the form of uh, transaction fees, the broken fees, um, which is still the case. Which is which is still the case. Yes, that's still the case. Yeah, but there are some. But it's changing. But it's but changing. it is changing, and there's Mifid twos coming in. Yeah, Mifid two, the, the European regulation is is coming in, and that that looks like it will um, it will it won't ban. Pay, uh, this well, this is this, this idea of bun- bundling execution, um, which is basically what it was, together with research and and the fact that for re- the research isn't costed and therefore no one really knows what it's worth and there's this sort of overproduction, overconsumption, so you get loads and loads of little unread bro- broker notes. Yeah, I mean the situation is a bit better now because there was a, there was some change to the regulation that meant that some of the money, yeah. the, the basically fund fund houses spent on research had to be ring fenced. And go potentially towards yes, independent research. Yeah, exactly. There, there is a kind of um, 
there's a bit of a fudge called these um, uh, commission sharing agreements, yep. CSAs, where you know, the brokers have to kind of take a bit out of the pot and then reallocate it to brokers that fund managers vote they like. I tell you what, that, I mean, I, when I finished being a broker in a house that relied on soft commissions, I went and uh, worked with a guy setting up a, uh, an independent house. And they were early, early yeah. uh, commission sharing agreements. I mean, I right. think before they were even called that, you know, right. just the way that they could make the thing work. Um, but it's hard work. It was hard work for the independent, much yeah. harder than it was for the for the, for the house, for the execution house. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't I mean, the independent research industry is bigger than it was, but I still think, I mean, it's, it's still, you know, it's not exactly in the in pole position here. Mm-hmm. And at there's the an moment. Inter- I mean, coming back to Glencore, that, that was a big thing at the time of the IPO that, that, that they employed so many house brokers to. We take them all on site. You take them, you take them, they all produce these very bullish notes, and there were yeah. very few independents. Well, the independents don't get the access that they need mm. to get the numbers and the, mm-hmm. you know, the access to management to ask the questions that they need to ask. So it happened a lot with large IPOs that they would yeah. basically take every exactly. analyst they could possibly find and on the, site. And exactly, and so the worst high profile IPO of you know the last five years, yeah, sort of, yeah. I think, had you know, a vast majority of analysts saying bye. Maybe this is a good example of it's a perfect example. <laughs> Maybe there should be like a limit or something. Maybe that's a, a rule needs to come in. I mean, well, I think, silly, I, think, I think the rule needs um, for, to my mind, the rule would be well, you know, you should not restrict uh, the access that independent analysts have to management mm. it, mm-hmm. with, within an IPO process mm. because then you might actually get some independent views on it. and but it's, who's in, and whose interest is that? Well, the investor. Yeah. Mm. The investor. But the, I guess this is um, the, the point I was making was that you know, MIFID 2 seems great in one way because the European regulator is trying to kind of you know, clamp down on this this practice. Um, and, and the other thing to bear in mind, actually, is that the institutional investors, don't, the fund managers don't pay for it out of their own cost structure. They, they merely add it to the bill that they then send to their... Oh, they're being stopped from doing that now. And and that that's what looks like it not not entirely stopped, but they have to kind of clear it much more explicitly with the with the investor. So this is within the fees, yeah, the one percent, two percent that that basically you're charged as a as a buyer of a fund. No, no, the, this this is it. The soft commissions have been something which has been charged on top, not within the traditional cost structure, not not within the annual management charge. So if I'm buying a fund with an annual management charge of one percent. There's could, extra fees. Yeah, on it could be a cost an, like a trading cost. Another, they can't uh, yeah, the, the, you know, those execution costs, those include the soft commissions for research. So that's the scandal, really. It's a, it's been a massive gravy train because obviously that's not what people look at mm. so much. Mm. I mean, they do look at total expense ratio, which is a good thing because that does include, in a backward-looking way, you know. The, but the, the but the thing that costs. gets advertised. But the thing that gets is, advertised is, is, is the annual, annual management, management charge, charge, which does not include. Extra costs. Yeah, a, a, what what is actually a you know an expense of fund management? I mean, the not, AMC not is a poor metric. I don't think I, investors shouldn't look at the AMC at all. They should look at the TR or the OCF as it's now called. But be aware that, as Stephen's saying, even the TR and OCF are backward-looking metrics. They're not complete charges because there are fees that you have to pay in an ongoing year, like transaction costs, which a manager can't tell you what level they're going to be because otherwise that could some believe uh, constrain trading if they say we're only going to make x off of our trading yeah. costs they can't pre well they claim they can't pre um predict it i, I think actually they could probably work out an average probably you know which is why i mean our actual uh, cover feature this week is about portfolios you don't need to churn uh, that was a nice segue, wasn't it? It was a very <laughs> nice segue. Um, Alex Newman's written this, but I mean, he, he interviewed a guy uh, at uh, Lidl Train, Nick, yeah. Nick Train's Nick fund. Train. Um, you know, Nick Train, I mean, famously, 
uh, in recent months came out and said, I haven't had a good idea in years, which I think is probably underselling what he actually does. But I think his yeah. point is he doesn't overtrade. He doesn't feel the need to be buying for the sake of buying uh, or selling for the sake of selling, Absolutely. as it happens. So, you know, a guy like him, his, his, his transaction fees are going to cost... Mm, not very, very much very at little, all yeah. and, it's, uh, yeah. and the, the, one of the FCA's um, issues about um, this soft commission business is that f because fund managers get, this, get votes which to allocate to brokers by trading then oh for the independent party yeah exactly trading. there's yeah, this yeah. there's this idea that they're, they're incentivized to over trade um, in order to kind of you know get leverage with brokers it's not a great arrangement it's basically it, just really? full of conflicts of interest and it, kind it, of it is. weak kind of uh, incentives and you know if, when i was in in that it, that's what it felt like you know mm. i mean if you weren't trying to drum up some 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 trade um you were probably on the wrong end of uh, some kind of corporate finance related push to win a client or support a client that you already had the whole thing felt as daniel davis pointed out in his piece and i thought it was very brave to write that i have to say before i knew he was an independent analyst now um you know it did feel riddled as you say with conflicts of interest it mm. didn't feel great um and, and the myth and i've always worried about saying that yeah. i always felt like well and the Mifid, i mean it's, it's well known by the fca but the myth the mifid too will hopefully sort of neutralize some of those conflicts of interest but it then comes to the danger that the stockbrokers then have to remunerate themselves by charging companies more which will further undermine the research the independence of the research because yeah and as you point out you know yeah. they'll, they'll go more down the corporate route anyway exactly so, so then yeah. you'll they'll be even more hamstrung by the relationships that they have exactly. with uh, yeah. with the company between the companies and the brokers um yeah i mean it's, it's a really tricky one it's a really tricky one um and it, you know my, the reason the, the reason i wrote my column uh, a few weeks before you wrote yours, Stephen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not going to forget this one, are you? Um, was was that I had a, a letter from a, a reader basically saying, you know, what is the value of uh, equity research? Should I worry about buy, hold, sell recommendations? My response was basically, no, that's irrelevant. You know, wh whether you buy, hold, or sell something is up to you, um, and 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 can be influenced in the the note sense by by other relationships. However. I do think there's value in equity research. Mm. These guys are not stupid. Uh, they do spend a lot of time focused on a very small set of companies in most cases, talking to management a lot. They've got insights that you could never hope to have. Uh, and the, and the, the forecasts they have are well thought through. Um, and, you know, if you understand what goes into them, then they're valuable and they're what, all you've got to go on in terms of valuation. Mm, so, absolutely. It's, they're worth reading, they're important. They're worth reading. Yeah. The, the other problem, obviously, retail investors face is they can't actually get them. <laughs> yes. Mm. Um, given which I don't, which I don't actually understand, because I think it's probably it, some sort of rule about it being advice yeah. or something. It's yeah. not. It's it, it's something along those lines. But it's. I think you, if you self-certify as a uh, professional or high net worth or sophisticated investor, you can have them. But if you don't, you can't. And yeah, we, I mean, there are some houses we struggle to get research out of. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, we, we get most of it, but it's, uh, it's a funny business. You say it's, it should be more freely available, really, especially if there's, in, in the environment that we are of liberalised pensions and everything, surely, hopefully, there. Yeah, I, you know. I agree. With, I completely agree. But then, equally, if you just flood the market with all this research and people don't know how to read it, because the nuances are important. Mm, and, you know, exactly. that's, what, that's what we spend our time trying to work out. You know, who, mm. what's the relationship here? Mm. Why are they saying that? you know what's gone into making up these forecasts you know you have to understand it and i guess that's why the the fca worries about giving it to, to all and sundry mm. Mm. 
financial education. That's what we need. All right. Well, blimey, we've been gibbering on for ages. Um, and uh, so much in this week's magazine. That's so an awful lot. so uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Stephen. Thank you, Bradley, for uh, for the chat this week. Um, lots in the magazine that we haven't even touched. As I said, Alex, Alex's uh, cover feature is on uh, worry-free shares, which uh, I guess, given the current market backdrop, is something everyone's looking for. But the, the point is, how do you find shares that have something which means that over the long term, come rain or shine, they will perform. And uh, that's what the cover piece is all about. And we've also launched this week IC Book Club. Um, so uh, this is uh, uh, Kate Bioli's initiative. Um, and, and basically, we're all, we're all reading hard. We've got lots of books in the, uh, in the office. We've actually started to read a few more of them. This week, we're looking at behavioural finance. Understanding yourself when you invest is really important. So that's what we looked at this week in, uh, in IC Book Club. Next time is crashes, apparently. We may have another one to write about by then. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, usual stuff. Uh, Ian Smith's written about the banks this week. Uh, always a hot topic. This is the three R's of banking. Redress, regulation and returns. So uh, worth a read there. Uh, lots of results. Usual tips. Funds section is uh, jam-packed as ever. And they'll be talking about that this week on their podcast. And uh, yeah, in fact, Leonora's done something which I think is really particularly interesting. Uh, is, is talking about uh, dividend reinvestment. Mm. Which is not always as easy as you would think it think it is. Um, vital to returns, um, but uh, there are certain, you know, certain charges that may eat into those. Anyway, thank you all uh, again uh, for listening, and uh, I'll see you all again next week. Pick up the magazine, four pound fifty. All good news agents. Uh, see you later. Bye bye. <laughs>